Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech companies. We have one more event coming up this year, our startup symposium in Houston, Texas, which will walk through the mechanics of how to run a startup company from ideation through exit. So if you're interested, use the code PM20 to sign up and get 20% off your ticket. More information can be found on our website. Our events are possible because of our sponsors. And we have our platinum sponsors like McDonald Hopkins that have sponsored both the Midwest Showcase, the Startup Symposium, and also the Project MedTech podcast. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by none other than the law firm of McDonald Hopkins. Building MedTech companies the right way based on great technology is not a one-size-fits-all endeavor. McDonald Hopkins provides customized and proactive strategies that align clients' valuable MedTech technology with their business goals. This, in turn, builds those clients into successful, thriving companies. With strong experience and depth in the startup, venture capital, intellectual property and fundraising arenas, McDonald Hopkins can be an important part of your team to help you develop the medtech business that you envision. In this episode, our guest Nikki Batista at MCRA or MICRA, Devin Campbell at Product and I discuss our new three-part series about setting up your company to be investable and acquirable. In this episode, we cover the merger of regulatory and business strategy, allowing business to lead decisions, not regulatory, global regulatory strategy, how to communicate with the FDA, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Devin Campbell and Nikki Batista. Nikki, Devin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, Devin, this is going to be our first of a, a three-part series. Um, so for those listening in, um, Devin would have been episodes 47, 48, and 49. Uh, we're now at, this will be episode 152 maybe, or three or something like that. Um, we did a three-part series, and Devin reached out earlier this year and said, hey, uh, what if we did another three-part series? And so we chatted about it a little bit and started to think of some topics. You know, we, we run a whole another podcast here at Project MedTech called MedTech Money, um, where it's solely focused on raising and investing capital, but from a very mechanical standpoint. Um, so we're talking about notes and safes and straight equity rounds and how much do you raise and these types of things and how do you pitch. Um, and Devin and I kind of said, okay, great, but what makes you investable? And so how do you maybe set yourself up to be more investable, but also more successful as a company and also keeping your acquisition potentially in mind later on? And so we kind of tossed this back and forth and came up with three topics. And this is our, our first of the three, which is going to center on regulatory. And Devin said, hey, I want to bring Nikki in to this conversation as well. And so, uh, Devin, Nikki, you, you both obviously know each other uh, quite well. But um, for those listening in, Devin, uh, at this point, people might be able to give your intro. But uh, intro to who you are. And then, uh, Nikki, an introduction to who you are would be great as well. Sure. So, um, intro to me, um, mechanical engineer, been in the medical device industry since the 90s, uh, brought a lot of products to market, a lot of IBDs, um, but other medical devices as well. Um, I've had the fortunate uh, success of, of being part of three uh, pretty good exits. And after my second of three exits, I started my own advisory firm um, to be able to help other emerging entrepreneurs and other people, you know, entertaining, stepping into this space, um, 
help them move forward with a sense of confidence and help them understand the strategy of what their life is going to be, understand what the life is going to look like going forward, but then come up with a strategy for how do we do that and then roll up our sleeves and get some uh, infrastructure built to help teams scale uh, as they grow. Uh, so that's kind of me in a super short nutshell. <laughs> awesome. And Nikki? Yeah. Hey, Duane. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So I hold, currently hold the role of Vice President of Digital Health Regulatory Affairs at MICRA, which is a global clinical research organization and integrated advisory firm. I've been with the firm for nearly four years now, launched the digital health program when I joined. Prior to MICRA, I was at a small company that you may have heard of called the USFDA. I was a reviewer in the cardiovascular group and worked my way up through leadership and ended my time there as the assistant director for one of the cardiac diagnostics teams, focusing in on wearables and arrhythmia detection. In that role, I got the opportunity to contribute to the foundation of digital health policy that we see out today. And prior to that, I worked at a start for a little bit and I'm a biomedical engineer by education. Very cool. Um, where'd you go to school at? Uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, go okay. engineers uh, in Troy, New York. Okay, there we go. That was my next question, which, which was going to be, where was that? <laughs> um, awesome. So appreciate the background, Nikki um, and Devin. So let's kick this off. Again, we're, we're, we're obviously fun, you know, um, centering this around regulatory. Um, uh, again, Devin, this time, the people who can't, um, the people can't see our, our, uh, podcast. It's only audio, but, uh, I'm not used to Devin giving me an outline, um, like this in terms of our topic flow. Usually he draws me a nice picture with a bunch of circles, arrows going all over the place. Um, so this is a little too organized. Um, but, uh, I, I do love, I do love the first, the first topic here, which is something we coach all of our startups at project MedTech um, to kind of go through when, it's, when you think of regulatory, which is is what is your end goal? What is what is your big, you know, your 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 indication for use that this is going to make you a market disruptor or this is going to help you with your commercial se success? Because oftentimes they they want to take like, oh, well this is the next step, but they're not keeping in mind the end goal and sometimes you can stray away from that. So curious, I don't know who wants to start um, uh, between the two of you, but just when you're when you're keeping that end in mind, um, you know, how do you, how do you think about regulatory there? Cause it can kind of be daunting. So I'll just want to mention that. And, and I do this within my practice at, at product. We've, we almost always bring a crisp attention, uh, and, and focal point to the end. Right. And, and the reason that you do that is not just to have this aspirational kind of cool thing. Like let's all go for this. It serves that purpose also, but it helps you ground yourself in where are you now and allows you to take baby steps toward that end goal. You don't need to take giant steps, right? Uh, sometimes you like wait too long and now you're forced into taking really giant steps. But by really thinking through that end point, it allows us to kind of strategically think through very carefully, well, what do we need to do regulatory wise? you know, the next conversation is going to be IP strategy. Like, what do we need to do IP wise? What do we need to do for all these different pieces? Because when someone like me comes in to do diligence, to look at you, I'm going to assess your plans in the moment relative to the maturity of your product and relative to where you think you want to go eventually. Um, so it's really important for us to, and I think it's an appropriate topic for us to kick off the whole conversation with starting with the end in mind. Um, so from a regulatory perspective, Nikki and I, we chatted a little bit about this beforehand, and I think you had some really great thoughts to share. Yeah, so I think another overarching theme that's really important for everyone going down the regulatory path to realize and advocate for is regulatory does not drive business. Business, right? Business sets the objectives and regulatory is here to support the business. And so I sometimes find myself being facetious on client calls saying, well, you tell me what you want. 
I'll get you there. It's just a matter of figuring out a way. And so what often happens is regulatory is viewed as a rate limiting step and a burden and something that limits innovation. But when you view regulatory as a mechanism and tool to strategize how to support your business objectives, it's a lot easier to then now parse down what is that slam dunk indication. Don't limit yourself to what your preconceived notions are around the regulatory landscape at the moment in time, but use it as a tool and a mechanism to, to build product. So if we take that mindset forward with strategizing, I think it's a lot easier to then pair back. Um, and so when we think about slam dunk, it's always really important to, on any initial call I have with a client is, what is your business objective? Who are the patients you're trying to serve? Who are the clinicians you're trying to uh, support? And what is the technology doing to, to serve that purpose? What's the indication that is going to get you access to the market you're striving for? And what is the smart way to potentially pair back some functionality, get some initial regulatory clearance or clearances to build to that slam dunk indication? Yeah, this is, thanks for the soundbite, um, because that's going to be fantastic. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, one of the pieces that is is really interesting um, is the fact that I'll hear a lot of startups go, oh, well, I have this stepwise approach. I'm going to go after this 510K indication. I'm going to go after a de novo next, and, and maybe another de novo after that for some other indication. And, you know, my question to them a lot of times is, okay, that's, that's fine. And that's a good path for some people. Um, but you're also making an assumption like that initial 510k. And this is where I try to like really ask them a lot of questions is you're assuming that you just are going to get a 510k so you can commercialize and you're like, well, I'm going to just get on the market so I could sell. Maybe that's a, uh, that's a possibility, but also commercializing a medical device is the hardest thing you'll do. Um, the U.S. healthcare system is extremely complicated, and people underestimate, especially if you're selling to a hospital, how hard it's going to be to do that. And so um, I think that's another example where they are letting regulatory and regulatory burdens drive their decision on their business and not actually what's going to be a good business decision. In some cases, a stepwise approach to regulatory is certainly warranted. In other cases, I could easily make the argument that you're just wasting time, right? Because you're not going after the indication you want to go after. Uh, I'm curious, you know, Nikki, from your side, do you see that a lot? Uh, do you help them walk them through that and understand that? So there's a couple of factors at play that we need to consider if the stepwise approach makes the most sense for a company. And largely, I think one of the bigger contributors is product development timelines. So say you have a multi-component system, maybe your hardware is ready way earlier than your algorithm, and there's an opportunity to submit a 510k for that hardware, which with a much more vanilla indication. And here's the beauty about regulatory clearances. No one's forcing you to commercialize that product, right? So if there is money to be had on the table to capitalize on that clearance, explore those possibilities. But what you're doing is you're breaking out the ultimate suite of regulatory facing documentation that has to get through FDA into smaller pieces. So now say that hardware is now through and I'm going back to the agency with just my algorithm, that might be the de novo. And now all I have to focus in on is the algorithm itself. And FDA has already said this hardware is good. So I think there are ways to not only see that as it's not overly burdensome in any way, you're going to have to submit that to FDA either now or later. But are there ways to leverage your product development lifecycle and strategically place in regulatory milestones throughout that development lifecycle to get you those early wins, get you something to talk to VC firms about, get you something to consider early revenue with? Yeah, that's great. Um, so, uh, I think one thing to keep in mind too, and you just brought up a great point here with, with your response, um, all medical devices are, 
are different, right? Software as a medical device, wearables, IVD, a straight medical device, um, a combo product, right? Drug delivery, um, Devin. Implantables. Implantables, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so Devin, from from your side, from the product side, but but thinking with regulatory in mind, mm-hmm. how does that change your approach uh, when it comes to these different devices? You know, what are you considering in terms of the differences? Well, for like a really early stage company, which is generally the folks that I work with the most, um, I think the important part for them to understand is that not all regulatory pathways are the same and not all devices are the same, even within particular pathways. So it's not like everything that goes a 510k route goes the exact same route, right? There are other implications, like the one you gave an example thereof, if your software is a medical device purely, versus like an in vitro diagnostic that involves software in a medical device, how we design and develop that software changes, right? And so like the way that we document requirements and the way that we kind of think through our product development processes, because we have to remember that from the quality management system side of things, it's it's all encompassing. It's not just at the end, right? It's how you do... how you do requirement definitions and how you do design and development work and all that stuff into transfer to manufacturing and, you know, post-launch, you know, commercialization uh, support. Um, so really helping kind of teams think through, well, what really are you? Like, it depends a lot on your indication for use. It depends a lot on what you intend to do, kind of what Nikki's talking about, your slam dunk indication. But could you pair that back into, I think we called it early wind. Um, can we pair that back into an early win? You know, maybe we could bring, to flip the script, maybe we could bring the algorithm to market really fast as, um, as a software and medical device type thing only. And then you layer in, you know, your ability to measure a specific biomarker or to, you know, you know add additional information that your device might bring in. Um, so, but thinking through those has a huge implication when we're talking about the product development side to think about, well, how do we design this product in a way that we can take credit for it later, right? And to build on the diversity of technology across this regulatory landscape is to recognize that while people may bring valuable experience to the table with prior FDA success, the regulatory landscape is dynamic and unique to the device type So partnering with people that have experience in your specific technology type or clinical discipline will provide that added value that really is tailored to the technology that you're trying to bring to market. Mm -hmm. The experiences across the various OHTs, which are the groups within the FDA that are responsible for regulating different technologies, all have very different experiences. They all operate under the same regulations. They have some shared policy, but there's a variety of what they call FDA guidance documents, which represent FDA's current thinking that might be very specific to a device type. So the further granular you get into the technology, the more tailored and specific that regulatory experience is going to be. Hey, um, uh, Nikki, you used the term OHTs, uh, and you kind of describe them. What's that stand for? Office of Health Technology. So there Perfect. are currently eight of them as part of CDRH, or the Center for Radiological Health and Devices, that uh, oversee all of medical device uh, oversight. Perfect. I appreciate that insight. Um, okay, uh, Nikki, question for you. Um, so, and we're going to focus on the FDA, but but just we'll span out globally for a second here too. Um, this is something that um, so I used to work for uh, before I started Project MedTech. I did work for a few competitors um, of of yours, probably uh, Namsa and what is now um, Fortria. It was Covance, then LabCorp, now Fortria, but. Something we used to spend a lot of time with, with maybe like middle stage startups, maybe not so early, was global regulatory strategy. So thinking through, okay, hey, you've kind of went through picture markets and said, 
<clears throat> Great. Um, we want to be in the U.S., Japan, Australia, Canada, Brazil, <laughs> whatever, right? You're picking yeah. all these different things. I'm curious in terms of when you're thinking about reg strategy, at what point do you start to go, okay, where can I double dip? Like where, if I have a US FDA clearance, can I go, oh, this is a, you know, I know this isn't a huge market, but literally it's no lift. I just, I have FDA clearance. I just got to find a supplier. I'm good to go. Right. So maybe walk me through a little bit. Like when do you even think about that? And at what point do you go market size, regulatory clearance versus maybe the market size is lower, but there's no regulatory like really needed. Right. No, it's a, it's a great question. And to dovetail on a comment you made earlier is FDA clearance is not commercialization. Commercialization is really challenging to do. And because it takes so much effort, often depending on the size of the startup we're working with, the idea of going global is just so overwhelming that the conversation is like, let's just get through, capitalize on the US market. There's so much work to be done across the geographies within the US. I mean, after you get your FDA clearance, now you have to think about how the heck do I make money off of this? Um, and hopefully you're already thinking about that and you have those mechanisms in place. But if you're seeking the reimbursement route, there's so much work to be done. So I think for the most part, it's understanding when does the startup company's business objectives have global plans? When do they have the palette and resources to support that activity? But often when we are working with companies, then I, I think you make a good point, that are more mid-size and have the infrastructure to support this, we'll do an initial assessment where if we know that the US is the first market they're seeking, we will evaluate the various geographies where that FDA clearance is their gateway to that market. And then to build on top of that, we will assess what international standards will you be complying to? What testing will you have? What does your DHF look like? What are, what are all of the evidence, what is all of the evidence that you have uh, to support the US filing that could then be leveraged for the EU or Health Canada, where it's not a one for one, hey, here's my FDA clearance letter, go ahead, um, have a field day. There's some additional requirements or things uh, that are slightly modified. And then we can strategically map out a global regulatory strategy based off of the delta of effort required. So that's the tactic we take. And we'll, we'll talk about this because, you know, you have to, it takes a village. You got to look at the whole picture, right? And we'll talk about this in the next episode. But even if we strategically decide, let's go ahead and bring it to the U.S. now. And we want to, because we, you know, we're a small startup and we don't have the resources yet. We want to gain, gain traction here and then we're going to bring it to Europe next year or something like that. Or maybe the year after. Great. Or maybe even five years later. Great. There are still a few things that you'd want to do when, as you're thinking about that too. And I'm thinking specifically like IP protections, right? You might choose to defer when you go and try to gain access, uh, access into other countries later. But it is important to think about how do I protect my, you know, my intellectual property in those other countries so that you can gain access to it. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. But I think it kind of helps demonstrate like the interconnectedness of it all. And um, I can Nikki give also I can give you a concrete. Oh, go ahead. You also mentioned one other thing I wanted to pick up on was um, safety testing, right? You talked about testing and safety certification testings that you need. Um, that's also one of those areas that when you're done with your product development process or you're toward the tail end, send your, your device through safety certification testing. If you send it through and you're just trying to meet U.S. expectations, um, when two years later you say, OK, great, now we want to go into these other geographies to so the markets. Um, a lot of times you can't just do additional tiny little bit of incremental testing or just take what you have. You kind of have to go back and repeat the testing because it wasn't done at the very beginning. So that's also one of those examples where, you know, from a regulatory strategy, you might come up with, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this one a couple years later, thinking through the safety testing. You say, well, maybe let's spend the tiny incremental amount of money we have to be able to do the additional testing 
need to access the Japanese market, for example. And then you do that all right up front, even if you choose not to go into the market. And a concrete example of that is, say a company develops a usability engineering process and they follow the FDA guidance on conducting human factors and usability testing. Good and dandy, if as long as you follow that guidance, you should meet Mark. If you choose to also comply with IEC 62366, the internationally recognized standard for usability engineering, now you have all of the necessary records in place to comply with these other jurisdictions that expect compliance versus FDA guidance compliance. So there's small deltas that we do consider with clients in these strategy phases. What additional effort would not necessarily be required for FDA, but will help you in the long run? Sometimes clients are like, no, I want the leanest thing possible. Cool, we'll just comply with FDA guidance. But if you're willing to do, you know, that 25 extra, 25% extra work, then that, that works too. Another, yeah. another example, which will soon be not relevant anymore, but um, with the harmonization of 1345 with 820, um, but you know, risk management. So like ISO 14971, you know, the, if you choose to do things in an ISO compliant 14971 way and build out your hazard analyses and do everything in the way that those standards have you do it early in your design processes and you build that in the whole time, you're going to be in a better position to meet European expectations and U.S. expectations. But if you just say, oh, I'm just going to do because uh, there's less of an emphasis in 820 currently as there will be once it's harmonized with 1345. Um, so you can get you can do less. You don't have to do all of uh, 14971 necessarily um, to be able to access the market, but then you find yourself in a situation where you can't access the market because you didn't do that little bit of incremental work, which you would have thought about in your regulatory strategy upfront. Yeah. Um, this is why I love doing episodes with Devin because, uh, you took two of my next questions right out of my mouth, which was going to be the ISO 13485, uh, and, and the one prior to that. Um, we are throwing a lot of standards around here. Um, but, but if you are early, especially for these new ones, right? So you mentioned someone, I, I think you both have said DHF, right? So for those listening in who aren't, are maybe stepping into med tech design history files in terms of standards, um, uh, Devin threw out ISO 14971. That's, or I think that's, that, those are the numbers in order. That's mm -hmm. an important one to understand. ISO 13485, um, the human factors, uh, a standard that uh, Nikki threw out there. Biocompatibility is ISO 10993. Um, that's probably an important one for you to familiarize. There's a lot of these important ones out here. Um, I'm not going to link all of them <laughs> because that would be <laughs> exhaustive. Um, but but just so people are aware, because it was we were flying around there really fast. Um, okay, so we're going to focus on FDA. Um, the number of times I've heard from a startup, it's like, oh, the FDA just doesn't get it. They don't do this. They don't do that. The FDA has a tough job um, because they are often, I don't know, if Nikki, if you said it earlier, but they're oftentimes looked at as like a barrier to entry, right? It's like, ah, oh, if they just would clear this and, you know, I could change the world and we get it. But the FDA is here to make sure you're putting a safe and effective product on the market, right? And so... Um, uh, it's it's a hard job and they have to familiarize themselves with all sorts of technology. And I think the assumption that's sometimes made by startups is, well, you know, they, they should know everything about everything, right? And it's like, well, they're learning too, right? I mean, if you look at when um, software as a medical device came out and AI and machine learning, like we don't, we don't know. And, and the FDA has to learn as well. And, and they do a really good job of pulling in industry experts. And I know that because when I was at NAMSA for biocompatibility testing, that's what we excelled at. We used to get pulled in all the time with the FDA to help go through a chemical characterization was a big thing at the time. And so we were helping with understanding chemical characterization, extractables, leachables, these different things. And so um, you guys wrote this down, but it's something we tell our, our clients as well is like, keep in mind the FDA is human, right? And so Nikki, I'm curious from your side, putting yourself back as an FDA reviewer, 
you know, how did you want to be communicated with? How did you want to be talked to, right? Because these are important things because you're going through the review process with them. And um, I know for a fact, I've seen some times that it's like, I've seen emails sent to the FDA reviewers that are like literally cringeworthy or like, would you talk to any other person that way? So I'm just curious for you, Nikki, you know, some of the, some of the horror stories you've seen, but what are effective ways to communicate with you as a reviewer? Yeah, I appreciate the question and I'm happy to be in a role where I can share some of my anecdotal experience that will hopefully help the audience here. Like you said, the FDA is not a series of robots or algorithms that are assessing your product and your uh, documentation. It's, it's people just like us. So the way I describe it is all of the disciplines, the multidisciplinary teams required to design and develop a product reflect the multidisciplinary teams reviewing your product. FDA is composed of scientists, engineers, veterinarians, medical doctors that oversee your product. And the experience of an FDA reviewer is reading endless numbers of pages of text, tables, and images to come to a conclusion about whether or not either a, you know, me too product or an incredibly cutting edge, innovative product is safe and effective for the US population to use. The FDA reviewers take their mission very seriously as they should to protect and promote public health. And so you're met with passion, inquisitive people that are paid by your tax dollars and user fees to critique you. Um, and they're the gatekeepers of that. The challenge though is, and rightfully so, FDA does not regulate practice of medicine, standard of care, clinical guidelines. That is left to the clinical community. And often what we find in innovation, we are challenging standard of care or introducing new clinical workflows that FDA simply just isn't educated on. And in many scenarios, industry and the innovators have to see it as part of their role to not only educate the agency, unfortunately, or fortunately, in what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it and how it disrupts or um, supplements the clinical workflows that exist today, but also see FDA as a collaborator, as someone who is there to be the play the role of poking holes in your plans, but for the sake of ensuring that the product you're putting out is of high quality, is safe and effective. So I think that there's, because they're human, there is some different approaches taken, different personalities, and sometimes you'll get a lead reviewer that's super interactive, willing to jump on a phone call with you, others that might be a little more uh, conservative or uh, more formal. So it's a matter of finding out what the best dynamic is for the lead reviewer you're working with, but really approach them from the aspect that they only know what they know. And if they don't know it, they're gonna ask for data to prove or educate them. So, so it's really, it's, it's an intense learning curve. Um, and I, it would, I, I'd be remiss not to mention that these reviewers are worked hard they are reviewing a lot at once. And so a tactic that is not undermining their intelligence in any way is repetition. Repeat yourselves all the time. Sometimes people might feel as though, FDA, we've already talked about this. And it's like, yeah, you probably have, but those reminders are actually really important because when you have 25 files that you're actively reviewing, you might, you might miss a few details. Um, so repetition is key in communicating with FDA. Yeah, Devin, before I kick it to you, I mean, it's it's the rinse and repeat rule, right, Nikki? It's like you got to rinse and repeat three times. Um, Devin, if you want to pile on, feel free. And then I have a direct question for you as well from the product side. Sure. Well, maybe I'm, I'm leading you into it then with what I'm about to say. <laughs> Probably, like always. Um, so, I mean, I think as a product developer, right, uh, and as a mentor and advisor for dozens and dozens of product development teams, um, an important thing to recognize is, is that 
the FDA does not have to be just the final step in your process, right? Um, they are there to help you be successful in bringing safe and effective products to market, not just like at the end of the whole thing, you knock on the door and say, please, may I come in? Instead, you can engage them early. And when I'm doing diligence work, it's something I, I very much look for. Have you had any communication with the FDA yet? I don't care if it's an, in, like an informative meeting, if hopefully you've had like a pre-sub or something where you've had some conversation with the FDA early to help inform your product development processes in the directions you're going, because it helps you think about, oh, well, what burden of evidence might I need to create for, you know, if it's something more than just a simple 510K, let's say. Um, but even if you're going to simplify 510K, it makes a lot of sense to engage them early as people who want to help you be successful and yeah. get that input in really early and say, well, oh, wait a second, um, you know, they're thinking this would be a predicate instead of this or whatever. No, now, instead of when you get to the end and they, you know, you get the door closed. Right. Um, so I think that that's an important one to stress as well. And sometimes I'll, I'll look at teams or I'll talk to very early teams and I'll look at their product development process and their, you know, their overarching strategy and, and scheme for the whole for the whole project. And it will be devoid of the voice of the FDA or other regulators early. It will be, we're going to do all this work, then we're going to do our clinical, then we're going to prepare our data, and then we're going to submit to the FDA. I'm like, you could be in for a really big surprise if you do that. <laughs> um, and it's a lot of wasted effort when you could spend a little bit of time organizing yourselves earlier and have a pre-sub right. or two. One, yeah. of, one other quick note is it's communication 101, right? Know your audience and know the language they speak. And something often I find companies trying to do which totally makes sense from a business perspective. There's a financial aspect to business, right? Duh. Finances mean nothing to FDA. It's patient first. So if you tell the FDA, hey, we're producing this product, you should want it out because it's going to be so much cheaper than what is out there currently, or it's going to save the healthcare system X billions of dollars, great, but don't care. So know your audience. Yeah. So, so Nikki, in the same line, Devin, the question for you, I'm going to ask you this question. Then Nikki, I have a handful of like probably rapid fire questions to kind of demystify some of these like early wins we're talking about. Um, because early wins are, are huge, right? So when you're really early, de-risking the investment for an early um, investor, even maybe before VC, we're talking angel, family office, high net worth individuals, um, is super important. So a pre-sub's a great early win. Um, Devin, though, you know, with, with pre-submission meetings, um, you know, when I hear a, a company went to a pre-sub without a, a regulatory consultant, sometimes I like I cringe a little bit, right? Because mm -hmm. I know how important pre-subs are and how mm -hmm. you how you have to speak to them. It's very easy, I've noticed, with really early stage founders, especially ones that are technical founders, mm -hmm. um, they really want to talk about all the ins and outs of their product and how awesome it is and how cool it is and, and everything like that. And that's not the best method, maybe, when you're going to the FDA. And so for you, Devin, as a product person, how do you kind of restrain that excitement to like really nerd out on, on the technology but knowing you have an hour with the FDA, like you got to get some answers. Or a lot less than an hour. Right? <laughs> yeah, right, um, right, right. I mean, in, in, in a pre-sub situation, you are submitting material to them ahead of time so that they have a chance to review it. So if you want to geek out, put in some really, really deep technology dives in the material that you send to make sure that the folks that you're going to talk to really understand how you're doing what you're doing. And if you want to geek out on how cool it is, geek out there. But in the course of the conversation, I mean, pre-subs are very strategic events, right? The way you ask the questions and exactly what questions you ask are very, very particular. It is not something I would ever recommend really passionate and smart founders Google a bunch and then decide, I think I can do this on my own. Um, you, it is worth the money to bring in a professional uh, like Nikki, like people from her team, 
but bring in folks that know how to speak, I'm going to say, FDAEs, okay? Um, and how to ask the right questions, because that, that's really important. In the conversation, I would really focus on the safety and efficacy of your product, because in the end, that's what they're caring about. So why is my product as good or better than other things in the, on the market? How is it safe? Stress the things that you've thought about there to ensure that the product that you're trying to develop at whatever stage you are in your development cycle is going to, in the end, be a very safe and effective product. And then ask them, do they support that? This is what we intend to do. We're going to do this kind of testing. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to go this regulatory pathway and try to get you're not really going to get a yes, but you're going to at least going to hopefully you hope for not a no. Right. Um, and and there's, you know, there's some science to all that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't waste that precious small amount of time that you have by geeking out and like nerding out on the technology itself. Because like Nikki said, you know, it's just like on the technology is cool, you know, and there might be an opportunity to have a huge financial impact on the system, but that's not what we're really focused on. We're really focused on safety and efficacy of the product. Nikki, I'm sure you have a lot to add here. So feel free to pile in from a strategy of the pre-sub and then I'll get to my rapid fire questions in a second. If there is content that you want to geek out in that you believe could be valuable to FDA's understanding of your product, there's a mechanism called an informational meeting. FDA has no commitment to provide feedback, but especially in the case where you're introducing something FDA has never seen before, it's an opportunity to do a product demo. Explain the mission of your company and why you're creating this. Talk, make that compelling story of the unmet need that you're trying to tackle. And these strategic conversations specifically with this informational meeting it's a type of cue submission you could submit and especially in light of fda accepting now in-person meetings again a post-pandemic it's a way to garner champions within the agency for your technology there's nothing more valuable than having someone at fda believe in your product and see the value and these informational meetings could be that strategic seed to so. I think it's a valuable tool that is underutilized. Um, you know, I think people sometimes have these fantasies in their brain that, oh, we're going to get breakthrough designation and now we're suddenly going to be able to like get the FDA involved and they're going to help us a lot on things when, you know, that's hard to do. Um, but you don't have to go that route. I mean, you absolutely could in your regulatory strategy, especially for an earlier stage company, say, let's do an, you know, an informational meeting, which is great. And then follow that up a little bit later with, uh, with a pre-sub. And maybe we'll plan, like, depends on how long your development cycle is, maybe you plan to have another one where you give them an update on what you've done since the last pre-sub and how, you've, how your thinking has maybe changed a little bit. Um, yeah. Okay, so so rapid fire, you guys have alluded to it a little bit. There is no limit on the amount of pre-subs you can have with the FDA, correct, Nikki? Correct. Awesome. What about uh, timeline? Walk me through this process. They're free, right? No well, user. Yeah, no, they're, they're free for the FDA. They're going to cost someone to bring with you each time, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so no user fee. That's, okay. that's the fee you submit to FDA to review su um, submissions. So no user fee with pre-subs. Um, yeah. Okay. 70 uh, to 75 oh, days. Oh, review clock. Yeah. So 75 yeah. days. Uh, the meeting has to uh, occur within 75 days. That's uh, a new part of what was the last Madufa negotiation. So there's yeah, a okay. goal associated with that. Okay. And, if you, and you'll get, if you ask, if you're going for written feedback, you can also get written feedback and you'll get it as soon as five days before the actual scheduled meeting. That's right. That's okay. all new as of June, I think. Okay, and then um, so process, you go there, you ask your questions, you get some written responses, mm -hmm. but then also um, you can take meeting notes. You uh, have from to. My you have to take meeting notes, and then you can send them to the FDA. You have and, to. Okay, <laughs> and if they agree with them, is that like, so I, I guess where I'm going with this is I'm going to ask you to explain what a 513G is oh. and the difference between the two and when you may want to use a 513G versus a pre-sub because that's a pretty common question for early stage startups. You got it. And I know, I know that 513Gs are like, once you get that, that's, that's in, in like, that's written, that's how it is, it's final. 
When you submit meeting notes, though, yeah. and get that approved by the FDA, is that final as well, or is that still like negotiable? All conversations under pre-submission is considered informal feedback, non-committal feedback. Understood. So if you need a concrete, formal designation or classification of your product with a letterhead from FDA, the 513G is what you should explore. If okay. you can get or accept rather informal feedback in the form of a written uh, letter from FDA under the pre-sub, then that should be sufficient. Normally what this uh, relates to is when companies are trying to figure out if their product is regulated and Ultimately, it all comes down to the palette for risk of a company. I work with some of the global manufacturers, big names that everyone knows of. They're super risk adverse and they want that formal letter. Um, I have some early stage startups that have the palette for risk and what I come in as is an expert. Do that assessment. They have something documented because what happens, what could happen is FDA looks at your website and says, hey, I think this kind of looks like a device, but we don't have anything on file that shows that you have a clearance. So they send what it's called, is a, it has come to our attention letter, and go back with this assessment that says, hey, per XYZ policy, we're actually low risk under enforcement discretion. Here's some citations to the guidance where we've submitted this. Um, so. Let, let, okay. Let's get down to brass tacks on that too. I mean, where where does that often show up? At least in, in my in, in folks that I work with, it's when companies believe they are class one five ten k exempt products, but they're still looking for you know additional funding. Mm -hmm. And so, someone who is a medical device savvy investor is going to second guess and say, "Are you really sure?" You're a class one, five, ten k exempt, or you could even go potentially class two. But do you think you're five? Do you really believe that's the classification and that you're exempt? And you can you can do your own assessment. You can step it up, and you can hire a regulatory professional to come in and do that assessment for you. Or you can you know talk to the FDA and get them in writing to say, yeah, we agree with this classification. I mean, you don't have to go into everything else. You could just have that conversation for that one piece of document, that one piece of information documented, which gives you something concrete for someone like me to come in later when I'm questioning, you know, your, your, your strategy overall and to say, yeah, actually you are very, very clearly class one and not just because you Googled a bunch of things and you think you were class one, but because you've got, you know, the defendable, paper yeah. from the FDA that says so. Without getting too much into the weeds, I've, I've seen one horror scenario with um, a 513G where a company um, really should have been classified as a device, got classified as a drug in a 513G process because of the way they explain the process of, of how, <laughs> what did you say who? Did you say, ooh. Oh, <laughs> it's like, I can't share that. <laughs> but, um, no. you know, yeah, you know, without getting too much into the weeds, I'm confident if they would have done a pre-sub, they would have been able to explain, you know, why they were a device and not a drug. And, and, and once that happens, that's pretty much, you're, you have to go to Europe now. And right. just to clarify, Dwayne, did they submit a 513G or an RFD request for designation when they're just finding the primary mode of action? I think they did a 513G, okay. but I could mm -hmm. be mistaken. It was a while ago. Something to yeah, think yeah. about with combination products when you're combining a drug with a biologic or a device with a biologic, et cetera. FDA will have to designate a primary mode of action. And mm -hmm. analogous to a pre-sub, you can submit what's called a pre-RFD or pre-request for designation. And again, it's, it's a way to have that informal discussion, but specifically around the context of primary mode of action. That can give you um, some helpful indication so that if they do misunderstand the technology, you're not pigeonholed into FDA's misunderstanding and then pushing you as a device. Awesome advice. Um, That's really good advice. Yeah, and Nikki, quick question too on, um, 
you know, uh, combination products or drug delivery systems, um, just because it's being re reviewed by, um, is it Cedar? Um, that's the drug side or drug, drug. Yeah, that's Cedar. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So if, if, if Cedar is the lead reviewer, um, but maybe you're using a generic drug that's already on the market, but you're, you know, your, your big technology is really the delivery system. They still pull CDRH in to support that process. Or I think sometimes I think people get confused on how that works internally. Can you so walk through that? Yeah, of course. It's actually the other way around. So ah, okay. with drug delivery systems, especially where they're just, uh, indicated for drug classes, those delivery systems are regulated as devices. Obviously, in the regulatory world, there's always this it depends nuance scenario, but I'm leveraging my experience for delivery systems with catheter-based solutions um, that were regulated by our team in the cardiovascular group, um, and it was very silent on the drug side. Um, but there are situations where you might have a drug delivery system that is the primary mode of action is the drug and, and FDA um, or the CEDAR is the lead center. And anytime there is a device component, CDRH is pulled in to consult on the file. Cool. Okay. So um, last question. I, I love when we have episodes like this where I look up and go, I can't believe we're 48 minutes in. Um, <laughs> but... Um, if I'm an early stage company right now, um, like very early, I got my idea, I'm maybe tinkering with the prototype. What are some of these, and we kind of talked about different things, um, like going and do a pre-sub and that sort of thing, but even earlier, like what can I do right now to start trying to figure out this regulatory aspect of, of what I'm going to have to embark on and be able to have some, you know, educated conversations with early stage investors. Devin, we'll start with you and then kick it to Nikki. Well, don't procrastinate. I mean, I think it's, it's valuable to spend a little, to understand and to be humble and to understand that you need a regulatory strategy. Just as, just as much as you need a product development strategy and you need an IP strategy, you need all these different things to be able to effectively bring a product to market successfully later. And if you don't have the funds, at least sit down and you know, do the best you can researching. You know, Google things, learn things, listen to podcasts like this one, take some notes and come up with what you think is your regulatory strategy do the best you can to try to figure some of these things out, but don't take that to the bank. I would rather you, especially if I'm looking at and I'm performing diligence or I'm looking at an early stage company that's talking to me and you know, wanting like my teams to be involved in some way. I would rather you have something from a, a, along the lines of a, of a regulatory strategy that you've thought through and you recognize that it hasn't been reviewed by a professional yet, you know, a, like a, a, someone from the regulatory affairs space. At least you have something, and that's better than having nothing. Because if you have something that's going to start you down the path of building like a culture in the company that respects risk management and respects quality and respects trying to understand these things, because in the end, it's going to help you deliver on your regulatory strategy. But if you have nothing and you just think, oh, I'm going to de design my product, I'm going to... Um, finish everything. I'm going to build my FDA submission package in one week, and then I'm going to submit to the FDA uh, two weeks later. And then three weeks after that, I'm going to get approval. Like that's not how these things work. Like you could at least inform yourself on like what reasonable durations are and how long these things take. Right. And build that reality into some of your plans and start thinking about, Oh, we're going to need to have these things and acknowledge your two people and some grant funding great. It, at least acknowledge that that's where you are at and that you're going to need some help later because you can always raise money to bring in more professional help. Um, but to sit down, write out a basic regulatory strategy that you think is the best you can do, I think is the important part is that you, you sat down and you tried, right? Rather than just doing nothing. I, I can see Nikki's got something she wants to add. So if you are not in a position to directly interact with someone like myself, which is not an uncommon situation, companies like Micra are not the cheapest to work with, 
there are a variety of free resources out there that you just need to do a little homework to find. People go on LinkedIn, search hashtags for regulatory affairs. People are putting up free content all the time, pointing their networks to new guidance documents, putting out really just helpful tidbits. The other thing is we might actually be able to indirectly work together. Micra understands that there are not many early stage companies that have the resources to work with folks like ourselves, but we want to get them to a place where they can ultimately work with us. And so Micra partners with a lot of incubators and accelerators, and I do, including product. And we, we offer up pro bono time to, to present to their cohorts, give them regulatory 101 education, because we recognize that the FDA website is a labyrinth of information, but if you don't know what you're looking for, it can be incredibly overwhelming. So maybe get on LinkedIn, search some hashtags, maybe look at getting involved in an incubator, an accelerator that has the expanded network of experts that live in the regulatory space that could give you that 30 minute call to just set you on the right track. Yeah. I love the, I love the advice. I'll, I'll sprinkle in my, um, uh, advice here as well, or something I like to, I like to tell the startups we're working with. There's a difference between a regulatory consultant and a regulatory strategist. And if you have, um, in, in really early, early, early conversations, um, I don't know what Micra's rates are, but but if I had a thousand dollars or even two thousand dollars, I would pay that for whatever time it would cost for a regulatory strategist to sit in the room, uh, review review what I'm talking about, but then just sit in the room as we're having early stage discussions on what the biggest market is and where we should go with this technology and how we want to do it. It is, it is. You can save yourself tens of thousands of dollars oh, yeah. later on if they could just nip certain things right in the butt as you're talking about them uh, we've had we've done this with a few different companies i can't tell you how like the, the value we walked out of that room from like a three-hour meeting was way beyond the couple thousand dollars we spent to get everyone in that room um let, let me good. let me pour some fuel on your fire there let's so, let's let's do it you're an early stage company and now you're trying to get some angel invest investment, let's say from a larger syndicate, or you're trying to go for your A and you've got some, you know, some smaller sized funds that are looking at you. Um, you know, we might not, when they hire someone like me to come in and, and do the do the diligence to take a good look at you, we might not expect you to have the whole thing, but to have had that, and even if it's, you paid $2,000 and you've got someone, and I say, well, how did you come up with this strategy? Well, we did this and this, and well, have you had any feedback on it? And they say, yeah, we worked with, you know, Micro. We worked with whatever company. It's like, oh, okay. You actually had someone who knows what the hell they're doing advise you, even if it's a little bit of advice. I am going to have a bit more confidence in your ability to pull off your plan in the end because I know that you've had that voice, right? And at least the voice can come in and say, you're smoking crack. There's no way you can do what you're trying to do, right? <laughs> there's your soundbite. Right. There's That's your soundbite. Right. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's the next soundbite there. Perfect. <laughs> so, um, so at least you've got some like really strong, defendable professional opinion. That it, and it's like, you know, we're, we're, we're taking kind of an Ollie North approach, right? Like, trust me, but verify. Like, have somebody else come through and take a good look at it and say, yeah, these guys know what they're talking about. Yeah, 100%, Devin. I'll, I'll sum it up with, with uh, we'll end on this. Uh, if anything we learned through the MedTech Money series of talking to investors, um, there's, there's three core areas, uh, problem and team above almost anything else, and then solution. And so um, if, if I'm looking at, if investors are looking at an, a very early stage opportunity and go, wow, that's a big problem, cool solution, and you can say, oh, yeah, I'm working with Micra already. I'm working with Devin. Even if you're just having a couple hour conversations with them, right? That's that's part of your team. It's an extension of your team as a startup. And you have to look at it that way. Your consultants, your advisors, um, people you engage with, whether they be full time or not, are part of your team. And that helps 
really de-risk the opportunity here. Um, Nikki, Devin, thank you so much for doing this this first part of our three-part series. Um, Nikki, it was great to meet you. Um, for those listening in, depending on the platform, up or down an inch, there'll be links to both of their LinkedIn's, both of their company websites. Um, and uh, Nikki, Devin, thanks, thanks again. Hang on, we'll chat offline real quick. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.